Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This is the Tom Hartman Program. And greetings, my friends, patriots, lovers of democracy, truth, and justice, believers in peace, freedom, and the American way. Tom Hartman here with you. I want to ask this question. When are the Democrats going to stop playing Charlie Brown to Lucy's football? I mean, you know, Chuck Schumer came out with this really good uh, plan. I mean, really, the Biden administration put it together, but they did it collaboratively with the, with the, you know, the head guy in the Senate. And with Nancy Pelosi in the House, of course, to put, you know, over two trillion dollars into American infrastructure over the next decade. Which, when you think about it, is not that much money. That's what, two hundred billion dollars a year for 10 years. Not a lot of money. And to put another two trillion dollars roughly into our soft infrastructure, into our schools and our young people and, and daycare and things like that. Um, again, not that much money over a 10-year period. The Republicans came back and said, oh, my God, we can't do that. It's too much money. You can't. And the Democrats said, okay, uh, give us your alternative. So the Republicans first came back and said, well, how about $600 billion over 10 years? And we'll make most of it like, you know, money that we're going to take out of unspent funds from the money that you just allocated for the COVID relief, that was a two trillion dollar bill. We're going to take we're going to take six hundred billion dollars out of that that hasn't yet been spent, money that hasn't yet been given to the states or to the people or whatever you know that's planned over the next year. We're going to take that money and use that for infrastructure, so you don't have to raise taxes on any of the billionaires who fund our corporations. Won't that be nice? And the Democrats said, no, not going to do that. We're not going to take $2.2 trillion down to $600 billion. But tell you what, the Democrats said, we'll cut it down to $1.7 trillion. You know, we'll do away with a bunch of, we'll get rid of child care. We'll get rid of, you know, there's a bunch of stuff we can get rid of. If that will make you Republicans happy. And the Republicans are like, well, you know, we'd like to think about that, but uh, maybe we have some proposals. We need to evaluate it. It's going to take some time, some weeks, some months. 
In the meantime, we're going to get closer to primary elections and the Senate summer vacation and other things that might cause this to never happen. And the Democrats are like, cool. And it's like, what's it going to take? This has been going on for 20 years. This happened to Bill Clinton, for God's sake. This has been going on for 30 years, where, where the Democrats put forward a proposal. The Republicans say, well, you know, we like the idea. We're all in favor of the goal that you're talking about, but we have a different way to get there. Just give us a little time and we'll work something out. And the Democrats go, okay, fine. You just hold that football and, uh, you know, we'll come kicking it again. And then a few months pass and the Democrats, you know, the, the Republicans say, oh, here you go. Here's another unacceptable piece of crap proposal. Everybody knows it. Everybody knows it's not going to pass. It wasn't done in, in good faith. They did this to Bill Clinton. They did this to Barack Obama for eight friggin' years. And they've been doing it to Joe Biden for five, six months now. Well, I guess five months. At what point do the Democrats say, you know, screw you guys to the Republicans? At what point do the Democrats say, you know, we're going to go it alone? Now, I get it. There is a strategy here. I talked about this a little bit yesterday. Where Biden has to make it look like he has done everything he can to include the Republicans so that when something gets passed without Republicans, the one thing that the Republicans won't be able to say is we were excluded from the process. Now, number one, nobody cares whether they were part of the process or not. What they care, people are going to look at the outcome of the legislation. I mean, yeah, in Washington, D.C., and some policy wonks and people like me, but you know, the, the 99% of Americans don't care, number one. And, and, and number two, you've got to get this stuff through. You've got to get this stuff passed. I mean, if they can pass this, this, um, this uh, jobs bill through reconciliation by simply appending it to the earlier COVID relief bill, which appears to be what the Senate parliamentarian said you guys can do, they don't need any Republican votes. This is not subject to filibuster. They just need to get about doing it. Now, Biden has come out now and said, we're going to do it in July. That's what, six weeks from now? More or less? We're going to do it in July. We'll see. A lot can happen between now and July. And, and with things like the January 6th commission, for example, you know, oh yeah, well, January 6th commission, uh, now you have to understand how the Republicans are looking at this. You will recall back in 2013, I think it was, Kevin McCarthy going on Fox News and saying, we just put together a special commission on Benghazi and a special investigation into Hillary Clinton's emails. And when we are done with, I'm paraphrasing here, but you can easily find the quotes. 
And when we are done with this investigation, she is not going to be a viable candidate for president in 2016. We're going to destroy her. And it's exactly what they did. You had 10 different separate investigations of Benghazi in the emails. It, it cost probably well over $100 million. In many cases, the Republicans had meetings during these investigations where they literally locked Democrats out of the room. Remember that? We're talking just, you know, just a couple, just six years ago. And now the Democrats are like, well, you know, we need to let the Republicans in the room. We need to collaborate with them. We need to, we need to cooperate with them. We need to work with them. I get it. You're trying to get something that you can sell in Wyoming. Wyoming is lost. Forget about Wyoming. Just get the damn bill passed. You get that damn bill passed, and when they start building bridges in Wyoming that have Joe Biden's name on them, Instead of Donald Trump's? Or instead of Liz Cheney? Who has voted against everything the Democrats have been pushing? When they start building those bridges in Wyoming, when they start bringing broadband to rural people, and, and, and if they do a good job, those people realize, like with the RTA, the Rural Telephony, telephony uh, administration back in the in the 30s um the federal government brought this to me not some big corporation and not the republicans but it was the democrats in charge or the rural electrification administration i think that preceded the rta that was the one under uh, fdr the rea in the 30s we're going to bring electricity out to rural areas they did it in my opinion democrats just need to get get going They need to get this legislation passed. Now, it may be that what's going on right now, and, and, you know, love to hear your thoughts on this. It may be that the game that Biden is playing right now is let's first try to blow up the filibuster so we don't even have to worry about reconciliation of these things. And let's put something really important forward that the Republicans can filibuster so we can get enough outrage that we can blow it up. And they thought that would be the George Floyd Policing Act. Justice and Policing Act that was supposed to be signed yesterday in the White House with the family. It wasn't. This is the Tom Hartman program. And it wasn't because of Republicans. At what point did Democrats say enough is enough? And at what point does Chuck Schumer get his hands around Joe Manchin's throat? We'll talk about that right after this. If Chuck Schumer can't whip his caucus, if he can't get Kirsten Sinema and Joe Manchin in line, he's incompetent. That that's part of his job. And he's got to figure out what these people want and offer it to them or what they fear and threaten them with it. Now, that said, I think that it's really important that we look at what Joe Manchin is doing right now, like on the January 6th commission. Well, here, this is first, the, the infrastructure and jobs package. This is from uh, Daily Coast, from a piece that Laura Clausen wrote in today's Daily Coast. And the headline is, Infrastructure Talks Rendered a Joke by GOP Bad Faith and Whatever Joe Manchin Thinks He's Doing. Yeah, I mean, you know, these kind of negotiations about things like infrastructure, these are, this is, 
This is custom made for Republican lies. This is where they excel at lying and blocking and obstructing. And Joe Manchin is going along with it. Chuck Schumer came out and said, we're going to move forward in July on infrastructure. The Republicans are like, oh, we're not going to be ready by July. Uh, Maybe next year. Maybe the year after that. Maybe uh, when President Bush is back in office or Trump. So anyhow, Chuck Schumer says, July. We're going to do infrastructure in July. Don't worry about it. It's going to happen. And what does Schumer come out and say? Or what does Manchin, excuse me, Manchin come out and say? Quote, there is no magic date and there is no magic time. What the hell? Who is the Senate Majority Leader? Joe Manchin or Chuck Schumer? I mean, Joe Biden and Chuck Schumer dropped their infrastructure plan from $2.3 trillion to $1.7 trillion to bring in Republicans at the insistence of Joe Manchin. And the Republicans are saying, no. No, and any, any money that you're going to spend on infrastructure, you need to take it away from your COVID funds that you've already passed. They are not negotiating in good faith, and neither is Joe Manchin. What the hell is going on here? Here's another one. We have had 37 states join the union since the original 13, right? 13 plus 37 is 50. If I'm doing my math right in my head, I I often get math wrong in my head, but I'm pretty sure I got this one. Every single one of those states became a state with a simple act of Congress that was passed with a majority in the House and the Senate. Every single one of them. Washington, D.C. can be, too. So what does Joe Manchin say about this? He says, well, I've looked into this. And uh, I've decided that uh, if we're going to do this, we have to have a constitutional amendment to allow D.C. to become a state. Now, a constitutional amendment requires two-thirds majority in the House two-thirds majority in the Senate, and three-quarters of the states to ratify it, and half the states are controlled by Republicans. You think it's going to pass? No, not a, no chance in hell. So why is Joe Manchin saying something as stupid as this? 39 constitutional scholars. I'm talking major, major, top-of-the-line names, names that you would recognize, you know, uh, constitutional scholars wrote a letter to Joe Manchin earlier on West Virginia TV. He said, I took a deep dive into this. D.C. statehood is not a new one. They all came to the same conclusion. Congress needs a constitutional amendment. B.S. West Virginia became a state in 1861 when it separated from, from Virginia because Congress passed a law to declare it a state. Didn't take a damn constitutional amendment. So here you got 39 constitutional scholars. As scholars of the United States Constitution, we write to correct claims that the D.C. Admission Act is vulnerable to a constitutional challenge in the courts. There is no constitutional barrier. 
There is no constitutional barrier to prevent Washington, D.C., I'm quoting from their letter, from entering the union through a congressional proclamation pursuant to the Constitution's admissions clause, just like the 37 other states that have been admitted since the Constitution was adopted. So why is Joe Manchin doing the Republicans' work for them? Is it because he wants to continue being a star on Fox News? Is it because the Republicans are threatening him with something? Maybe they're going to go after his daughter, the, the pharma CEO who tripled the price of uh, EpiPens. Maybe they've got something on Joe. I don't know what it is. I don't know why he's behaving this way. The guy just recently won re-election. He, he doesn't have to worry about an election for a while. Is it ego? Are you in West Virginia? Do you have any ideas? I mean, maybe they just bought him. He's a multimillionaire. You know, I feel like I said, we, you know, we used to live in the same marina in Washington, D.C. at the Yacht Club. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity. And what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book in today's Tom Hartman Book Club is by Harvey J.K., Professor Harvey K., Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again. This is from the introduction. On December 1st, 1862, in the midst of the Civil War, just weeks before he was to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, President Abraham Lincoln delivered his annual message to Congress. Lincoln firmly believed that the United States had an historic responsibility to demonstrate to the world that people can govern themselves, make equal rights not just a self-evident truth but a manifest one, and create a political and economic order in which working people, both white and black, are not compelled to bow to anyone, neither aristocrats 
nor capitalists. Empowered by tens of thousands of black slaves who were already liberating themselves from bondage by escaping to the Union lines, and increasingly confident that the majority of his fellow Americans would recognize the truth of what he was saying, Lincoln closed his address by calling on them to see that the time had come to remember who they were and what that demanded. He told them that to save the nation and all that it represented, they must live up to the nation's declared revolutionary purpose and promise and act to radically enhance American freedom by bringing an end to slavery. This is a quote from Lincoln's address. Fellow citizens, we cannot escape history. The fiery trial through which we pass will light us down in honor or dishonor to the latest generation. We say we are for the Union. The world will not forget that we say this. We know how to save the Union. The world knows we do know how to save it. We, even we here, hold the power and bear the responsibility. In giving freedom to the slave, we assure freedom to the free, honorable alike in what we give and what we preserve. We shall nobly save or meanly lose the last best hope of earth. End of quote from Lincoln. Back to Harvey. We too cannot escape history. Our own struggle to save the nation and the promise it proclaims has begun. Finally, after more than 40 years of fear-driven class war and culture war campaigns against the democratic achievements of generations, the hard-won rights of workers, women and people of color, and the very memory of how they were secured, and now both in the wake of the election debacle of 2016, which gave the presidency to the corrupt, mendacious, racist, sexist, and treacherous demagogue Donald Trump, and continued control of Congress to the formerly conservative but increasingly reactionary Republican Party, and in the face of intensified class and culture war campaigns, we the people have come not only to recognize that American democratic life is in jeopardy, but also to mobilize in hopes of saving it. Millions of us have rallied to the resistance and expressed our democratic fears and desires in action in the historic Women's March and March of For Our Lives of Young People, the protests, demonstrations, and legal actions to defend the lives and rights of immigrants and refugees, the Me Too movement to combat sexual assault and harassment, the massive teacher strikes for higher pay and better funding of public schools in states red and blue, and the enthusiastic canvassing and campaigning for a blue wave to win back Congress in the 2018 midterm elections. But resistance is not enough. The time has come for us to remember who we are and what that demands. The time has come for us to embrace our radical history. The history of how a generation of Americans, high and low, and in all their diversity, not only turned their colonial rebellion into a war for independence, but also imbued American life, whether they all intended it or not, with radical imperative and impulse by declaring a revolutionary promise of freedom, equality, and democracy for all. The history of how generations of radicals and reformers served as the prophetic memory of that promise and how generations of ordinary men and women, native-born and immigrant, struggled to make real the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness and to expand not only the we in we the people, but also the powers of the people. And most especially in view of the crises we ourselves face, the history of how our greatest generations confronted and prevailed over the forces that threatened to destroy the nation and bury its revolutionary promise 
in the 1770s, 1860s, and 1930s and 1940s, not to mention the 1960s, by acting to make the United States, both inspired by Washington, Lincoln, and FDR, and pushing them to go further than they might otherwise have gone, radically freer, more equal, and more democratic than ever before. The time has come to take hold of that history and make America radical again. I've titled this collection of my speeches and essays, Take Hold of Our History, Make America Radical Again, for reasons that will become obvious. And yet I cannot help but confess that if I had had to title it otherwise, I would have been sorely tempted to use, with full attribution, the title Max Lerner gave to his 1938 work, It Is Later Than You Think, The Need for a Militant Democracy. While it may not seem so, the crisis we face is no less demanding of action urgent action than that which confronted his generation. The book Take Hold of Our History by Harvey J.K. Let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Connie in Santa Fe, New Mexico. Hey, Connie, what's on your mind? Hello, Tom. Well, you were talking about elected officials and even Dr. Fauci, or especially Dr. Fauci, fearing for their lives mm -hmm. and just being scared to death. I'm wondering about Mike Pence. He's not at Mar-a-Lago. Do you think he will be invited to the Republican convention and be highly visible? Or I don't see how he and his wife and family can keep silent about the gallows, the noose, the chanting to kill. Has he returned my, to Indiana? My understanding is that they're in hiding. You know, the, okay. that they have, that there were several different houses that they were moving between throughout uh, uh, much of January and February. And that, you know, I kind of lost track of them. I don't know that their whereabouts is known. And I'm guessing that if their whereabouts is known, if they are someplace where we know where they are, that they have security details like nobody's business. They would have to. I mean, well, he, he had over a thousand people trying to kill him. Right. Is he, and the vice president, the ex-vice president, gets the Secret Service protection? I believe so, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. which brings up Carol Lennox's new book about the Secret Service. Right, <laughs> yeah, is, I saw that segment right? on, I, I don't recall if it was Chris Hayes, I think it was Chris Hayes' show or Rachel uh, It was Maddow's. Rachel, actually. Oh, it was uh, Rachel, yeah. Maddow, she had Carol on there. And That's right. So, well, I just hope that somebody, some underground group or something, will get a hold of one of Pence's staff and they'll talk because he's not an old, old man. And is he just going to, you know, hide some? Maybe just, just Who so knows? frightened. I mean, you know, he's he's probably got enough money that he's he's set for life. And uh, I mean, who knows? I don't know. But Connie, good question. Thank you for the call. And thanks for asking. Kylie in Marietta, California. Hey, Kylie, what's up? Oh, I have, I just love your show. Thank you. And I have a few things I wanted to say real quick. One about your racism. Um, one thing they could, we could do is show how other cultures have made America great again. And then another thing is to have them focus on themselves, make themselves valuable, and then therefore they can get the jobs they want. But what I really want to talk about was that you said that now is a crucial time in America, and I really think it is, because we all can see what's happening. There are laws that are being passed that are unconstitutional, and there are senators and, and representatives and congressmen who clearly on video, just like the other insurrectionists who were caught on you know, video and stuff like that, and yet 
they're not being held accountable for what they said or what they did. Right. And somehow we have to wait until the end of their term to be voted out um, before anything can be done. They committed crimes, and just like the other insurrectionists who are now being prosecuted, but nothing's being done. And we, as the normal people, we all see this. And we all see that as unfair, but feel very helpless to get any justice for the majority of the people who voted for Biden. So you're tying basically the prosecution of the insurrectionists to any kind of forward motion and holding accountable the Republicans who might have supported them? Is that the essence of what you're saying, Kyle? Yes, yes. That's what I'm saying. It's like if you hold office, you could apparently be an insurrectionist and encourage them and encourage all this, you know, lies about the big steal, right, mm-hmm. and not really be held accountable. We yeah. have to wait until here comes another vote. You know, we have to... No, I get it. Why, I get it. Why aren't they, why aren't they being arrested? Well, that's... that's video too. Yeah, I, apparently some of the videos were destroyed, but uh, it's a whole larger issue. And But, Kylie, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I think that we need to be holding them accountable. Kylie, thank you so much for the call. Paul in Woodenville, Washington. Hey, Paul, what's up? Well, Tom, I just kind of want to riff a little on my relatively newly evolved philosophy that Democrats need to take the state's rights position to once and for all and comprehensively determine which political philosophy is successful and which ones are failures. And I've already shared with you, I won't elaborate about my taxation policy about taxing the states rather than individuals. I sent you that article. Maybe you want to post that on your Facebook page. But and the, the, the I think it's wise. It is that, huh? I think it, it is wise. I think it makes a lot of sense. I don't think it'll ever happen, but I, I think it's a good idea, Paul. Well, okay, but maybe that that's a start. That's a it's a, it's an idea. But mm-hmm. we have to, you know, in 1932, Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis in a case called uh, New State Ice Company versus Liebman, it was in Oklahoma, in a dissent wrote that the, the states should be the laboratories of democracy. Right. In a laboratory, if you have a, a vessel, a, you know, a, a flask or a, a test tube, you have to not let it be contaminated by other vessels. So we need to find out once and for all which states, for instance, are going to allow you to vote or are they going to obstruct your right to vote? Which states are going to are going to allow women to have the right to, to their own uh, choice of uh, reproductive choices. Which states are going to say, no, go ahead, let, let it be the Wild West, and everybody has a gun and shoots each other. We need to start actually stop bailing the right-wing states out. Stop bailing out the red states by trying to save them all. Yeah. Now, if the Supreme Court wants to overturn Roe versus Wade or, or wants to let Mississippi do what they want, you know what they're going to do? They're going to cause a war in 25 red states, a war with women who live there. But you know what's going to happen in Washington State and in Oregon and in California? Nothing. Yep. Okay, so let them have at it because we've got to start once and for all, put these, the Republicans, whatever party you want to call it, we've got to put them to the test and say, is your political philosophy successful or not? And stop letting them contaminate and corrupt the whole system just to obstruct and say, because, you know, what we do. We bail them out and poor people in red states are in entitlements. And then what do they do? Do we get any credit for it? No, the Republicans there take credit for it and then call us socialists. Right. While, they, while, they, while their constituents are the highest consumers of entitlements. So right. it's crap. we got to start saying, no, 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 okay, you're on your own. You want states rights? Go ahead. You know, a couple of years, but I think it was in 2012, Alexa Pelosi, uh, Nancy Pelosi's 
start. Interviewed people in Mississippi. I remember this one person you talked to. She said, Mississippi is economically left. So your Republican ideals and policies really haven't worked for you, have they? And the man said, well, no, no, they haven't. But, but they could. They could. They could work. Mm-hmm. But we'd rather die than give up our beliefs. I thought, go ahead and it, buddy. Yeah. Drop dead. Yeah. You, know you, want to, you don't want to give up your beliefs? You know, the analysis you that you're suggesting, Paul, of uh, let's start comparing red states to blue states and let's look at their outcomes. Let's look at their health care outcomes. Let's look at their infant mortality outcomes. Let's look at their maternal mortality outcomes. Uh, let's look at their pay outcomes. Let's look at their quality of life outcomes. Let's look at their level of democracy outcomes. Uh, let's look at their yep. economic outcomes. Let's look at their state welfare outcomes. You know, like Kentucky gets three, $3 and change for every dollar that they send to D.C., Let's start analyzing those things and let's start keeping a scoreboard. I think that's brilliant. And I think that that should become a project of the Democratic Party. So, uh, you know, send me that send me that link or send me that article again and I'll, uh, you know, see what I can do with it. But, I, you know, I think it's an absolutely brilliant idea. Paul, thank you. Back with more of your calls in just a moment. Stick around. It's the Tom Hartman program helping you win the water cooler awards. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Now that we are literally back to places with water coolers, we have one here. (laughs) Let's see here. Bill in Seattle. Hey, Bill, what's on your mind today? Yes, uh, I would like to talk about the withdrawal of the troops. Mm -hmm. Um, From Afghanistan? Why do we have 800 bases in 100 countries in the world? Yeah, well, because we are or were the world's preeminent empire as a consequence of World Wars One and Two. Okay, so why are they still there? Because we have found it profitable to be empire. We have found it politically useful. Our politicians have found it politically useful. I think that that is fading rapidly, Bill, that sentiment. And I think that uh, Donald Trump, in fact, tapped into that, a vein of that, you know, when he said time to pull out of the rest of the world. And I think that the days of America being empire are numbered. If you look at how the British Empire unwound, I mean, there, there's, there's basically two ways countries go from being empires to just being countries. And one way is to do it carefully, methodically, uh, you know, over a period of a, a, typically a decade or two, which is what the United Kingdom did after World War I, because they used to have colonies all, you know, half of Africa, Africa was a British colony. I worked in Uganda, which used to be, and I worked in Kenya, which used to be a British colony. And, and I, for that matter, I've worked in Australia, which used to be a British colony. So Great Britain, over a period starting at the end of World War I and really finished by the mid-1950s. I think it was 1956 or 57 was the year that they finally pulled out of Uganda. And that was one of the last ones. And India also, you know, uh, uh, as a result of Gandhi. That's how you do it in an orderly fashion. And my hope would be that the United States does that. The way you do it in a well, disorderly not, not fashion to. is when you they're, get your ass so kicked. so much money being made, they're not going to. Well, they will, if, the there will if there's enough political pressure, Bill, and that's our job. And, and that is to be bringing up this issue with our politicians, to be saying, you know, American empire, enough, enough. Chester in Beaumont, Texas. Hey, Chester, what's on your mind? Oh, hi, Tom. Thank you for taking my call. First time to call. Thank uh, you. The uh, conversation you were just having with a person prior to the one you just had was about, you know, global warming and the, and the reasons for having 
things to do to stop this global warming. And I, I say the number one thing is to vote, and you just mentioned it there. Yes. And so that's that's really all I have to say. Yeah. Well, you said it very well, Chester, and, and your point is, is well taken. And I think you're absolutely right. We have to be politically active. We have to be, as you know, for the last caller, if we want to end American empire and have America just go back to being a country, you know, like the United Kingdom has done, by and large, you know, step one is let your politicians know. And uh, and also, if you want to do something about climate change and, you know, reducing the footprint of our military as an earlier caller, you know, made the point very eloquently. I haven't I, we have we have all been Googling, looking for the statistic and they can't find it. The U.S. military does consume like 12 million gallons of fuel a day. But beyond that, I you know, but, you know, our, our military footprint is contributing to global climate change too, all around the world. Another good reason to end empire. Our book club selection today is titled The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. The dedication of the book, this book is dedicated to the future generations of all species. Know that there were many of us who did what we could. This is from the introduction. The fall lasts long enough that I have time to watch the blue ice race upward, eons of time compressed into glacial ice, flashing by in fractions of seconds. I assume I've fallen far enough that I've pulled my climbing partner, Sean, into the crevasse with me. This is what it's like to die in the mountains, a voice in my head tells me. Just as my mind completes that thought, the rope wrenches my climbing harness up. I bounce languidly up and down as the dynamic physics inherent in the rope play themselves out. Somehow, Sean has checked my fall while still on the surface of the glacier. I brush the snow and chunks of ice from my hair, arms, and chest and pull down the sleeves of my shirt. Finding my glacier glasses hanging from, my pocket, from the pocket of my climbing bib, I tuck them away. I check myself for injuries and incredibly find none. Assessing my situation, I find there's no ice shelf nearby to ease the tension from the rope so Sean can begin setting up a pulley system to extract me. I look down. Nothing but blackness. I look at the wall of blue ice directly in front of me, take a deep breath, and peer up into the tiny hole into which I'd fallen when I'd punched through the snow bridge spanning the crevasse. The same bridge Sean had crossed without incident as we made our way up Alaska's Matanuska Glacier toward Mount Marcus Baker in the, in the Chugach Range. You get to look down one more time, then that's it, I tell myself out loud. Again, there's only a black and a yaw- void yawning beneath me, swallowing everything, even sound. My stomach clenches. I remind myself to breathe. Sean, are you okay, I yell as I clamp my mechanical ascenders to the rope in preparation to climb up. Yeah, I'm all right, but I'm right on the edge, he calls back. I can't set an anchor to get out of the system, so don't ascend. We're going to have to wait for the other guys to catch up. Time passes. The onset of hyperthermia means I can't control my body from periodically shaking. To ignore my fear of dying, I gaze meditatively at the ice a few feet in front of me as I dangle. The miniature air pockets found in the whiter ice near the top of the glacier have long since been compressed, producing the mesmerizing beauty of centuries-old turquoise ice. Slightly deeper into the crevasse is ice that has been there since long before the Neanderthals. I hang suspended in silence, mindful not to move out of fear of dislodging Sean. Giving my full attention to the ice immediately within my vision, I focus on how the gently refracting light from above seems to penetrate and reflect off the perfectly smooth wall. Staring into it, the blue seems infinite. Despite the danger of my situation, the glacier's beauty calms me. 
Delicate snowflakes and their infinite possibilities of form lay, land on mountainous terrain. Under its own weight, the snow is compressed into glaciers that scour and shape the face of the earth. Countless millions of tons of weight, aided by the force of gravity, push and pull these frozen rivers downhill, carving out cirques and troughs from uplifted geologic plates and sculpting the majestic heights of mountains that I have been drawn to since I was young. Eventually, our other two teammates arrive and work to extract Sean from his perch just six inches from the edge of the crevasse. All three of them set up a three-way pulley system. Laboriously, my teammates begin to haul me up, inches at a time, out of what nearly became my tomb. I continue to focus on the delicately shifting blades of blue in the ice as I draw closer to the surface, mesmerized by its raw beauty. My teammates pull me up to the lip of the crevasse. I repeatedly plunge the pick of my ice axe into the snow and haul myself out, never before as grateful for being on top of a glacier. I stand and gaze up at the mountain to the west, behind which the sun has just set. Snow plumes stream off one of its ridges, turned into ruddy red ribbons by the scenting snow. Snowflakes flakes flicker as they float into space. As relief floods my shivering body, I roar in gratitude and relief. Utterly overwhelmed by being alive and surrounded by the beauty of the mountain world, I hug each of my three climbing partners. Now safe, it sinks in how close to death I've been. That was Earth Day 2003. In hindsight, I believe the emotion I felt then stemmed in part from something else, a deeper consciousness that the ice that I had seen, which had existed for eons, was vanishing. Seven years of climbing in Alaska had provided me with a front row seat from where I could witness the dramatic impact of human-caused climate disruption. Each year we found the toe of the glacier had shriveled further. Each year for the annual early ice season festival on this glacier, we found ourselves hiking further up the crusty frozen mud left behind by rapidly repeating, retreating terminus. Each year the parking lot was moved closer to the glacier, only to be left further away as the ice withdrew. Even sections of Denali, which stands over 20,000 feet tall and is roughly 250 miles in the Arctic Circle, had undergone startling changes. The ice of its glaciers was disappearing quickly. Our planet is rapidly changing, and what we are witnessing is unlike anything that has occurred in nature or even geologic history. The heat-trapping nature of carbon dioxide and methane, both greenhouse gases, has been scientific fact for decades, and according to NASA, there is no question that increased levels of greenhouse gases must cause the Earth to warm in response. Evidence shows that greenhouse gas emissions are causing the Earth to warm ten times faster than it should. And the ramifications of this are being felt quite literally throughout the entire biosphere. And then, the, you know, he goes on, uh, oceans are warming, etc. The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. Edward in uh, Columbus, Ohio. Hey, Edward, what's on your mind today? I wanted to talk about the uh, January 6th insurrection. Mm-hmm. Go for it. What I got out of that was that the Proud Boys, the Oak Keepers, all of these white supremacist groups, they're just the military arm of the Republican Party. Yep. They work at, Paramilitary they work is the correct term, Edward. Paramilitary? Yeah. Uh, it's not an official military, but it functions like a military. Um, the brown oh, shirts were Hitler's paramilitary. The black shirts were Mussolini's paramilitary. The death squads were the paramilitary for the, for, the, for the El Salvador government. And here in the United States, the paramilitary arm of the Republican Party is, you know, the Proud Boys and the Three Percenters. And there's a whole bunch of these groups. Yeah. 
Right, and I think that the next strike is going to be on the uh, Black Lives Matter movement after the judge renders his the sentence of uh, the cop up in um, uh, Minnesota. Mm-hmm. I think he's going to come up with a very light sentence to provoke the Black Lives Matter groups out into the streets. And I think that's where the Proud Boys are going to like get with the police. And I think we're going to see some of the biggest massacres in, in the history of this country. It's not well. Number one, I'm I'm not sure that the that judge is that politically motivated or that racially you know has that much racial animus. It's not impossible, of course, this being America. But your larger point that any kind of an event that might get people into the streets, you know, a George Floyd kind of event happening someplace anywhere else in the United States that might get people out in the street could provoke an armed paramilitary response that would be a slaughter. You know, I mean, the closest we've gotten to this so far is one kid, you know, uh, being driven by his mother up to up to uh, Minnesota to, to murder two people and blow the arm or nearly blow the arm off the third. I think it's well taken. And, uh, you know, the good news is that the federal government is starting to seriously to take this seriously for the first time, frankly, in my lifetime. You know, the right wing terrorism. There was a, you know, Bill Clinton sort of reacted, you know, against Terry. uh, What's his name? And yeah, Terry Nichols. Thank you, Sean. But, you know, yeah. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. I see that as problematic and and I'm uh, at least comforted that the DOJ is taking this stuff seriously. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax. The way car buying should be. Maine in Chicago. Hey, Maine, what's on your mind today? My thing is about the police and how what they've been doing for over 400 years and what is called overseering. Uh, they've been overseering for, for the past 400 years when it comes to black people. 
to them, when a black person gets out of line, then they're there to put them back in their place, even if that means killing or murdering a black person. And because uh, they are to protect the capitalists and the oligarchs and Wall Street and the loop, like here in Chicago and downtown L.A. and Houston, you, they have the mindset of the overseer of the slavery days. And so they police the same way. They uh, shoot first and ask questions later. They're quick to tie somebody on the whipping post to, uh, to be whipped to death or near death, and they don't care if it's a man, woman, or child. That's essentially, you're describing our criminal justice system, Maine, and you're right. It came out of the slave patrols. It came out of the overseers. The overseers were the guys who sat on horseback with a shotgun, making sure that everybody was picking right. cotton the way they were supposed to, etc. And this is why fundamental police reform, not just tweaking around the edges, but actually re-envisioning who is policing, why we're policing, how we're policing, yeah. what policing even means is absolutely essential for the future of this country and for the quality of life of this country. Maine, you put your thumb right on it. Thank you so much. Cornell in New Orleans, Louisiana. Hey, Cornell, what's up? Hey, how you doing? I just wanted to encourage you to keep on uh, with your rants, but you know, because some people have made it and been successful in life, they see things through rose-colored glasses. And, you know, you see the world as it really is. And I want you to keep on expressing those things because I've learned so much about different things by li listening at your program. And uh, you need to keep on doing those things because we perish for the lack of knowledge. And everybody needs knowledge. And we want things to be as those people say they are, but they're wearing rose-colored glasses. So you keep on doing what you're doing. Yeah. And I'll keep on watching and keep on supporting the program. Thank you so much. That's all I have to say. Okay, Cornell, thank you very much. That uh, You made my day. I, I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Sharon in Wallington Ford, Vermont. Hey, Sharon, what's up? Hi, Tom. Love your show. I just wanted to point out to a, a previous caller, I agree we are a racist country, but we have kind of an anagram for it, and it's BIPOC, uh, which is Black, Indigenous, and People of Color. And we actually mm -hmm. set up some of our vaccine distribution centers specifically for BIPOC, and I'm very proud of our state for doing it. Thank you. Yeah, you're welcome. That was in Vermont? Sharon is gone. Oh, Let's see here. Kevin in Durham, North Carolina. Hey, Kevin, what's on your mind today? Hey, Tom. Uh, I've kind of been on and off with the show today, but I think I heard an earlier caller, I think was funny to somebody else, who was talking about successful black people and how that's, I guess, evidence that racism isn't a problem. Well, I just wanted to say I'm somebody who I guess people would consider a successful black person. I'm an art director. I've been in my field for 25 years. But what I would say is that, you know what, in the 25 years I've been in my industry, I think I can count on one hand the number of black people I've worked with. Mm. You know, I'm usually the only black person in the office. And so, you know, the problem that I have is that people will cherry pick and say, oh, look at Oprah or look at LeBron James and say, you know, well, hey, they made it. They're successful. So what's, what's the problem? And they're not willing to address the structural issues the uh, issues that affect the entire community as a whole. They would rather just cherry pick uh, different people and use them as a, as a, um, a way of saying racism isn't a problem. Look at Barack Obama. 
you know. Right. Um, Which so is what John Roberts said. Yeah, but but right. you know there there was a phrase that that was widely known and and frequently used back when I was a young person. I haven't heard it in a long time, and it was the exception that proves the rule. And I think that's what you're talking about here, Kevin. Yes, there's an occasional exception, but it's so occasional that it proves that it's actually a rule. Right. So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. uh, Tim Statton, just, I, I don't even want to go there with him. He, he drove me crazy with what he was saying. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I get it. I get it. Me too. In fact, he, he drove me so crazy, I, I picked up my phone and I dictated that rant into it that turned into the, the piece that I published over at Harbin Report. Kevin, thank you. Thank you for uh, your thoughtful comments. James in Madison, Mississippi. Hey, James, what's on your mind today? So, you know, I'm really torn about uh, Mr. Scott's comments. On the one hand, I agree. You know, there are a lot of white people that are out on the streets protesting last summer over what happened to Mr. Floyd. There's, uh, mm-hmm. I, think the, I think the vast majority of the country does not support things like birtherism, Donald Trump's racism, the marchers in Charlottesville. The vast majority of the country doesn't support Tucker Klansmen and Rush Limbaugh and the Boogaloo Boys and David Duke. But you know who does? Apparently the Republican Party. Yeah. And the question I have for Mr. Scott is if that is not a racist organization, why is it the case that Mr. Scott is essentially the only black Republican to hold elected office? Look around at the state houses, Tom. How many black Republicans have been elected to office in state houses? Virtually zero. Well, then let me expand that. How many black billionaires are there? You know, out of the thousand billionaires in the United States, I believe there are six black billionaires. Right. But but people, you know, people of color look at the Republican Party and see a place that's not welcome to them. Mm. And Mr. Scott needs to explain to us why that's the case. If if that's not a racist party, or at least if there's not racists in that party and and it's not a party that's tolerant of racists. Why is it the people of color don't want anything to do with it? Yeah, yeah. I, th- I think you, uh, you absolutely put your finger uh, right on, on the core of the issue. So, James, if you were advising the Republican Party, what would you tell them to do? Man, that's really, that's really hard. <laughs> because yeah. I, don't, I don't, you know, they, they need to completely uh, disband, in my opinion, and reform um, as something completely new and fresh. You know, people like Michael mm-hmm. Steele and people who have gotten out of the party due to the party's embrace of Donald Trump need to rise up, form something that can be, uh, that, that can take their place. You know, you know I, would, I would advise Democrats to start talking about Republicans' intolerance of minorities and the number of minorities that serve in Republican, uh, that serve as a Republican in the state house. That's something that needs to be talked about. Yeah, I'm with you. James, thank you. Thanks for a thoughtful conversation. I do appreciate it. And welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and George in uh, Chicago. Hey, George, what's on your mind today? Hello, Tom. Thanks for taking my call. This is a difficult subject, and I hope you bear with me because I have a hard time articulating this, even formulating it in my mind. But 
My starting point is our founders who had the perception that church and state must not mix. Every time they do, there's disaster. Uh, The second is that 2,000 years ago when the Roman Empire was the legitimate political authority at the eastern end of the Mediterranean, and the rules of the game in statecraft were might makes right, and that's what was recognized throughout the world, the constantly rebellious Jewish population was was put down and was scattered throughout the empire. Now, what happened to the Jewish people in the intervening years, particularly in World War II, is a horror beyond horrors. And I have some connection to this, though I'm not Jewish, because my extended family that's from Poland and Russia were horribly impacted. Some of them wiped out by the Nazis in World War II. Some of them broken in concentration camps. And yet, a political decision that was made 17 or 1800 years prior to the late 40s should not have been remedied by forcing a new nation on a part of the world where it had not been in 1800 years. Uh, What underlied establishing Israel at that time was largely religious, that it was the homeland given to the Jews by God. And our Constitution doesn't allow for those considerations. We do not allow an established religion. Now, all the nations of the world failed the Jewish people in the 30s and 40s, and the Jews who had been displaced should have been uh, funded and supported in every way to go back to the farms and and towns and cities and institutions that they had lived in and been part of before the war. I think the last three quarters of a century has demonstrated that the imposition of Israel on the eastern Mediterranean has been an endless set of problems and war and bloodshed, and there does not seem to be any solution to the problem. Where we go from here, I don't know. I'm not wise enough to know. But uh, the mistake was made three-quarters of a century ago, and the whole world's been paying for it ever since. Yeah, George, I, I get what you're saying, and I think that the idea of ethno-states, essentially— you know, Israel's not the only one. You've got, you've got numerous states that declare themselves to be legitimate because they are Islamic states, for example, or because they're principally made up. In fact, they're only, the only people who could become citizens are of a particular lineage. I'm thinking of Saudi Arabia, uh, United Arab Emirates, Qatar, several of these countries in the Middle East. It's a challenge because having an ethno state, having a state that's core singular foundational, I don't know what the word is, you know, the the center of it, essentially, is a religion or a genetic lineage is in some ways so spooky, spookily similar to what the white supremacist movement in the United States is trying to bring about here, which is a white white Christian ethno state, that it should give us all pause on the one hand. On the other hand, Israel is. It, it has been there since, since you know, 47 or 48. It's not going away. And, I, you know, I think that putting 
any discussion of it in this larger context, you know, is an interesting academic exercise. But I don't think that it's going to help this process. You know, we don't have a time machine. We're not able to create Israel someplace other than where it was created. Like, you know, for example, I mean, I don't think anybody would have been able to argue if a chunk of Germany had been sawed off and said, "Okay, this is the new homeland for Jewish people. Although, again, you'd be creating an ethnostate. But, you know, we were all horrified by that. But but none of that matters at this point. What what we've got to do now is figure out how can the United States, as a principal, one of the beneficiaries of Israel, or, or Israel's a benefit, you know, we, you know, provide some benefits to Israel, you know, how we're going to continue to interact with them as they uh, essentially become more and more a right-wing apartheid state. You know, we went through this with South Africa years ago. Reagan was, you know, gung-ho for apartheid. And, and I think we're going through it again. And it's, it's difficult, it's troubling, it's challenging. And I have no easy answer either, George. I mean, that was, I guess your point at the end was that you don't have an easy answer. I have none either. But we, we just can't walk away from it. We can't. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day on the Tom Hartman program. And in the meantime, don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Never was intended to be. It requires you. So get out there, get active, tag. You're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 